So Big Ben has struck 10 o'clock, and we can now start trying to discover which side thinks has carried the day. There really doesn't get a Brexit. It might have gone so differently. On the night of the referendum in the early summer of 2016, I happened to be in New York. In the early morning, I got up to watch the results come in on BBC World. We'd all assumed British pragmatism would keep the country from rocking the boat, and so were duly shocked when the Leave campaign snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. But it was a narrow victory, just under 52% of the voters opting to leave the European Union, the rest choosing to stay. Now, if at that point the Leave leaders had declared, we got 52% of the vote, we get to have 52% of what we want, the subsequent denouement would probably have gone smoothly. Polls suggested that many Remain voters accepted the result and were prepared to get on with implementing the decision. Meanwhile, the Brexit proposed would have been soft enough not to alienate them, so consensus would have probably been found fairly quickly in Parliament. Britain would have formally left the EU, but retained close ties that most people would have not noticed a big change in their day-to-day lives. But that wasn't what happened. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. The people have had their say Mm. and they voted for Brexit. Brexit means Brexit and we're going to make a success of it. Leave leaders demanded the hardest of Brexits, even if that meant crashing out of Europe and starting from scratch. When faced with the objection this might do severe harm to the economy, they just cry, the people have spoken. But the people they were referring to was clearly the 52% who voted to leave. The other half of the population were now stripped of any effective political voice. The so-called Ramoners, voters who wanted to have a second referendum, might never have gained much traction had the 48% got a hearing. But because they were orphaned, they eventually moved into the tent that repudiated the referendum result altogether and wanted to run it again. And so, Britain polarized into two warring camps, and the country today resembles less the great nation it wants to imagine it is, and more an ex-colony that has split into warring tribes. And there may be something in that analogy, because to understand the roots of Brexit, you need to go back to the years after the Second World War, when Britain lost its empire. I'm John Rapley. Welcome to Subversity. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. And UK is going to be in the back of the queue. Basically, they took back their country. That's a great thing. No hiding the fact. We wanted a different outcome of yesterday's uh, referendum. Britain had been at war for six years. My father was in the Royal Air Force during World War II, a time when Britain, cut off from international trade, coped with shortages and rationing. Life was rough, and it remained so, even after the war ended. Uh, you know, I think it was 1948... Yeah, uh, 49, in fact, uh, before I ever ate a banana since the beginning of the war, um, because bananas didn't come in. Um, uh, and it was 19, it was after the end of the war, for instance, that uh, uh, even uh, potatoes were rationed. Uh, and 
uh, that were rationed until I think 1947 or something like that. My parents would leave Britain in 1952. Now, most people who lived there during the 1950s remember Britain as being a dreary and austere place. But what motivated my father to want to leave was something really quite different. When the war finished, therefore, there's a great sense of relief uh, and a great sense of, OK, we've done our bit now. Now, now we'll sort of take life easy. Uh, and it was understandable. But the result was that people really didn't want to work that much. Uh, they'd, uh, uh, as things came, as things improved a little bit, uh, they'd rather have it uh, more, more, more fun and less, uh, 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 less fewer constraints. At the time, thinking that Britain had earned a wartime dividend made some kind of sense. Yes, the country had ceded its coveted place atop the world economy to America. Moreover, in 1947, it lost the jewel in its imperial crown when India became independent, along with Britain's other South Asian colonies in Pakistan, Burma, and Ceylon. But in other respects, the country stood tall. In 1950, it was still the workshop of much of the world, accounting for a quarter of the planet's trade and manufactured goods. And outside of South Asia, the British Empire was still intact. Indeed, many Britons migrated to the colonies in the 1950s, eager to take part in what came to be called the Second Colonial Occupation. My father didn't originally intend to join the Exodus. Instead, after he graduated from Oxford, he got a job as a management trainee at Morris Motors, the car corporation that produced such British icons as the Morris Minor and Austin Mini. He was to spend a bit of time in each department seeing how things ran before moving up the ladder. But for an ambitious young man he wasn't prepared for just how complacent his country had become. So the result was that uh, I shared the experience of everybody else who was there. There was, uh, there was about two hours' work a day done, and the rest of the time you fiddled it away, and, uh, you know, uh, because there wasn't even the work to be done. Um, so it didn't take too long before I realized that, I, that this wasn't going to go anywhere. After a year, he saw there was no future for him there. So he sailed for a new life in Canada. What he saw when he landed was a revelation to him. Early in the morning, I was going into Montreal looking for work, uh, and they'd begun to build a service station again, a gas service station. And when I came back uh, fairly late in the evening, uh, this was in October, so the, the evenings were closing in, and fairly late in the year, certainly, certainly well beyond dark, and they had flat, uh, very heavy floodlights working, and still, guys were still working there. And they, when I went out in the morning, they, they, uh, I don't know was it was the same crew or not, but they were still working at the gas station. And within about three days, that gas station was built and operating. Uh, you know, that you, you wouldn't have found that in Britain. It turns out that Britain in the 50s was less the frumpy old lady of so-called austerity Britain than a middle-aged man who's starting to feel his virility wane just a bit. Still, he can make up for it with the shiny sports car he could never afford in his youth. In many respects, the country's best days lay ahead. The British economy grew faster after the war than it ever had before. The grim austerity that my parents left behind in 1952 gave way to decades of abundance. I'll be more
Aging can be a bitch, and Britain was starting to feel its aches and pains. Part of its funk was that even though Britain was growing richer, other countries were doing even better. It particularly rankled that Germany, the country Britain defeated in World War II, overtook it. Meanwhile, the remaining British Empire, in Africa, the Caribbean and Southeast Asia, became free. By the end of the 1960s, all that remained of history's biggest empire were a few small, far-flung colonies like St. Helena or the Falkland Islands. Not much to impress the girls with. And then, to add insult to injury, in 1956, Britain decided to show the world that for all its setbacks, it was still a big bruiser. It picked a fight to assert its manhood, and it took a beating. The Royal Navy patrols Egypt's coastline, while its carrier-based Venoms, Wyverns and Seahawks carry out their task of destroying NASA's airfields, and supporting the Anglo-French landings in the Canal Zone. Working in close... When Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, in which British shareholders had a big stake, Britain did what empires do. It sent in the troops. Things went terribly. The world united to condemn the action, and even the United States refused to back London. Isolated and adrift, Britain woke up to the hard and humbling truth. Its imperial youth and swagger were truly gone. Britons began crafting a narrative to account for this relative decline in their greatness. They said that Germany got more of the Marshall Plan aid money than Britain did, that the United States forced Britain to pay its wartime debts rather than writing them off in gratitude for standing up to Hitler, and most of all that the dreaded European Union was a power ploy that enabled Germany to do with trade what it couldn't do with tanks dominate Europe. Little of this is true, by the way. Britain was actually the largest recipient of Marshall Aid money after the war, and the debts it had to pay in the 1950s were for a loan it took after the war. In truth, my father had put his finger on the real cause of Britain's decline relative to its neighbours. Britons were tired of sacrifice and now wanted the good times to roll. While the Germans were making hay... The British were voting themselves pay raises that outstripped their improvements in productivity. British factories slowly declined in competitiveness. The empire, meanwhile, no longer provided the country with a slush fund. So that dude entering midlife? Yeah, he bought a car, but he did it on credit. And the payments were starting to bite. Plus, there was something else going on. Back in June of 1948, the SS Empire Windrush had arrived at London's Tilbury Dock, disembarking 500 Jamaicans. Over the next two decades, they were joined by a half million other immigrants from Commonwealth countries. Their arrival in Britain enabled the economy to grow as strongly as it did, 
since they plugged critical labour shortages, from driving London buses to staffing the newly created National Health Service. In effect, to keep Britons in the style to which they had grown accustomed, the country imported workers from throughout its former empire. Not that it always showed them much love for what they did to help Britain's post-war recovery. Airbrushed from the picture of a harmonious Britain that you sometimes get from people nostalgic for the good old days is the extreme racism to which these immigrants were often subjected. In 1968, the Conservative politician and one-time cabinet minister Enoch Powell gave a speech that would go down in infamy. In this country, in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Well, I can already hear the chorus of execration. How dare I say such a horrible thing? Powell was roundly condemned by the establishment, yet became the country's most popular politician. Although the Conservative Party would distance itself from him, his memory was kept alive by admirers. Not the least by someone who was only four years old at the time of Powell's speech, but would go on to shape the future of British politics, a gentleman named Nigel Farage. As Farage would later do, Powell campaigned not only against emigration, but against Britain's entry into what would later become the European Union. After the Suez Crisis, and as Britain lost what remained of its empire, the country worried that it might become a relatively marginal player in global affairs. Teaming up with the emerging European powerhouse seemed an obvious way to maintain its place in the world. Besides, by the 1970s, the country was running out of options. During the so-called oil decade, the economic situation deteriorated so badly that Britain became the first and only developed country to ever approach the IMF for a bailout. By then, the country was being roiled by riots as anti-fascist punks fought running battles in London's streets with the National Front, the neo-fascist party that was trying to lure Enoch Powell supporters from the Conservatives. So, hitching its cart to the dynamic, seemingly liberal European horse seemed a sensible way for Britain to break out of its funk. After it joined the European Economic Community in 1973, Britain held a referendum to confirm the decision. Two-thirds of the country voted to proceed into Europe. Britain seemed to have found its new place in the world. The National Front are unashamed of their vicious race aid policies, although they pretend to be a respectable political party. We are putting a lot of psychological pressure on immigrants. We are telling them we do not feel they should be here. They are folk rockers. The new craze, they tell me. With its entry into Europe, Britain seemed to find a new life and identity. Its economic dynamism resumed, and it stopped falling behind its European peers. Its economy became more outward-oriented. And rather than sinking into being a marginal player in global affairs, say, Portugal with aircraft carriers, Britain became one of three major players in the emerging global economic pole that Europe would become. So, how is it that a small core of Europe haters managed to keep alive Powell's vision when the country seemed to have warmed to Europe? 
To understand that, you have to understand the role the empire played in the rise, fall, and, Brexiters fondly hope, rise again of Britain. It's not that the Brexiters want to recreate the empire. They're not that unrealistic. But they long for the pre-Suez days when Britain was a great power that could dictate its role in world affairs. Throughout the 2016 referendum campaign and the two years of tortuous negotiations which followed, Brexiters assumed Europe would cave to British demands because, well, that's what everyone once did. And when the defence minister said Brexit Britain would send a gunboat into the South China Sea or the trade minister told Japan to get its act together and give Britain a trade deal, they were actually surprised that such interventions turned into diplomatic crises. They were still operating on the assumption that just making their demands would get results. It's hard to overstate the impact the loss of empire had on British unity. For starters, the prosperity that had made Britain great and which enabled it to build the welfare state and high living standards that everyone is so attached to benefited immensely from the bounty of empire. Moreover, it was an empire that Britain's disparate peoples found their common bond. At home, they were English or Scottish or Welsh or Irish or Ulstermen, but in the strange foreign lands, they were united by their common identity, their Britishness. Without that bond, they were left with each other. And so Britain today is kind of like one of those married couples that don't actually like each other, but stay together for the children. And once the children move out, their disagreements become more frequent, sharper, less forgiving. The truth is, Britain didn't vote to leave. England did. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to stay. Equally, Britons didn't vote to leave. Older Britons did. Younger Britons, who had no reason to feel nostalgic for a golden age they had never known, overwhelmingly voted to stay in Europe. That's why, no matter what happens in the coming weeks, the Brexit project, that of a buccaneering Britain that will beat its own path back to global greatness, of a Britannia which will once again rule the waves, in the words of the imperial songs so beloved of the Brexiteers, that Brexit is doomed. As the dream dissipates before the cold reality of the modern world, the sun will finally set on that empire. And as older voters die off and new ones enter the voting rolls, Britain will continue to move away from its imperial past and towards its European future. Subversity is the university of the market square, taking academic debates out of this seminar room and back into the streets. Join the conversation. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook.